You're listening to the Grassroots Church Podcast. We're a Jesus-centered community in Thunder Bay, Ontario. You can learn how to participate more by going to our website at grassroots.church. So, how many have had a chance to watch uh, the, Galati- the Bible Project's uh, video on Galatians, the introduction to Galatians? Chris Tudela did, which I believe that. Robin did, I do believe that. <laughs> Just kidding, Chris, I'm sure you did. Um, Anyway, I posted it on our Facebook group this week, and I thought it was a great, uh, a great introduction, a great kind of overview of the book of Galatians uh, from, um, sort of, yeah, from the Bible Project's perspective, and it was uh, very solid. Uh, we've been going through this series now. It's, uh, we're two weeks in. Uh, this is our third week, actually, and I think next week will be sort of our last week, so we're halfway. And we are looking at the, the, the epistle to the Galatians um, specifically for the reason of what Paul is writing to them all about, which, uh, as we've talked about over the last few weeks, this issue um, that is not necessarily one of wrong theology, per se, although, you know, you could, be, you could make that argument as well, and Martin Luther has done that, and the church for 500 years has kind of seen it through that lens, which, that's fine, but it's more than that, and I think uh, more urgently we said over the last few weeks that Paul's issue, the thing that he is writing to the Galatians about with such urgency and, and this sort of um, demand is because there is a threat to the churches of Galatia um, from the outside, these Jewish Christians are coming in, and they are imposing a bit of a different gospel, and the with the repercussions of having division and separation. And so Paul is coming and saying, no, 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 don't don't do this. This is what he calls new creation community is to look like. And he writes the book of Galatians. Like, this is what it means to be um, in Christ. This is the book, by the way, that we were, uh, I'm I'm gleaning a lot of the insights in this series out of. It's called um, Freedom from Religiosity and Judgmentalism. And I would highly, highly recommend this book. It's fantastic. Every page is just loaded with just solid insights. Anyway, so Paul is saying, this is what it means to be in Christ. And I want you to hold on to that term uh, this morning, because we're going to come back to that in a little bit. Um, but there are no pre-qualifications, specifically circumcision, uh, following you know, Jewish rituals, and you know, obeying the Sabbath, and things like that. There, those are not preconditions to being in Christ, to being a part of this you know, family of God. Um, so these Jewish Christians were coming in, and they said, basically, you had to be functionally Jewish in order to be worthy of being a follower of Jesus. And Paul is saying, no. And so when we look at that, we say, hey, you know, we're not so bad. We're not imposing circumcision on people. We're not imposing the Sabbath on someone. We don't, we don't care if people don't follow Jewish rules. And so, you know, we have this sort of thinking that we are so much better off than those bounded Jewish Christians who just did not understand the gospel. But, like, two seconds of reflection on our lives and and the way that we approach things um, shows us that despite, you know, proclaiming a gospel of grace that we all believe in, that we've all, many of us have grown up with, understanding that we are saved through faith, despite, you know, yelling that from the mountaintops, believing that from through our hearts, we functionally live very similar to how these Jewish Christians uh, were living and how they thought 
about what was worthy or who was worthy to approach the throne of grace. Now, um, our lines might be different. Like I said, we're not really into Jewish customs and things like that, but we still have them. This, this week, I actually uh, came across an example in mainstream media that I thought, wow, that kind of is speaking to exactly what we're talking about here this morning. Ha- has anyone seen uh, or heard of the show? You probably have, and it shows how much out of the loop I am. Um, a show called uh, Miami Inc. Raise your hand if you've heard of the show Miami Inc. Heather has, and a few others. Okay, great. And there is, um, this lady is apparently on that show. Does anyone know who this is? What's her name, Nita? Kat Von D. Good, thank you. So you don't really need to know. I had no idea who this lady was. Um, I'm sorry. Again, shows how much out of the loop I am. That's okay. Uh, and if you don't know, that's okay too. It doesn't really matter. But Kat Von D uh, is a tattoo artist on this show. The show is about tattoos, presumably. And she herself is riddled with tattoos. Um, Anyway, this week, uh, there was a conversation in Relevant Magazine that, uh, or an article in Relevant Magazine, in which she talks about her recent conversion to Christianity, which is really cool. So she converted to Christianity out of like a whole background of witchcraft and just messed up stuff, and, and then she was baptized. Um, and the media kind of covered a lot of that. And because the media covered a lot of that, uh, there was a lot of criticism because like, oh, look at you trying to make a big deal out of you know, your conversion, your religious experience type of thing. And she said that um, there were a lot of folks who gave her flack for being so public about her conversion and about her baptism. And this is what she said. She said, it was really the Christians who were the worst. It was really just sad to see this critical display of judgment from Christians. And she talks about being called out by critics who doubted her faith because of the way that she dresses. Um, she's predominantly, apparently, known for dressing in very black clothes, black makeup, lots of tattoos, sort of this goth look type of thing. And so she received a lot of flack for that. And this is what she said. I think it's really insane that we live in a time where people still judge a book by its cover. I wasn't aware that there's a uniform you're supposed to wear once you give your heart to Jesus. Ouch. So there's this unspoken addition to the gospel that we all have, that we all impose. It's like this is the Jewish Christians imposing their extra gospel on the church of Galatia all over again. And now your response might rightly be, this, Stephen, is why we shouldn't judge, right? We leave the judgment up to God. And I would emphatically agree with that. And yet each and every one of us judges all the time. All of us. None of us escape that. So yeah, leave the judgment up to God. Amen. How do we do that. Because it is what Christians know. It is what humans do. It's as familiar to us as breathing, either consciously or subconsciously. We are passing judgment on everyone around us. And we are valuing others as either in or out, as either worthy or unworthy, as either on our side of the line or outside of the line, as we were talking about bounded churches and bounded sets and what that looks like last few weeks. And what 
results in that judgment, what results in us doing that is inevitably self-righteousness. We think we're better than other people. And self-righteousness leads to dissension, division, separation. You go your way, I'll go my way. You're clearly not as worthy as I am. You're not up to snuff. You dress a certain way, right? And, um, and so that's, that's why we're embarking on this series. That's why we've tackled the book of Galatians, because we want to find a way that moves us beyond this lip service of don't judge to a place where we can actually live that out in practice, in this safe community, within this church, so that we um, can remain unified. And friends, in a time in our world, I mean, this has been from forever, but in a time in our world in which uh, specifically we look out there and we see just division and discord and separation on all levels of society, wouldn't it be sweet if we as a church could sort of be like the city on a hill, this beacon of hope, like a new way forward that we can agree in spite of our differences, that we can be unified in spite of strong differences, that we don't have to go our own way. We don't have to value one over the other. We can just say, listen, none of that speaks to what it means to follow Jesus. And so that's what uh, this morning we want to begin envisioning as we approach my, what, um, what it might look like to do that. And, and this is not an easy task. And we're not going to be like, oh, the series is done. We got it down. Perfect. This is going to be work that we put in as a community. It's going to be a, uh, a transformation of our minds. It's going to be figuring this out little by little as a group of humans. And, our, and my plea is that we would be able to do that in a safe space without fear of um, pushing each other away over time. And this, uh, th- this way forward, I think, that uh, Paul speaks about, that Paul's getting at here in uh, Galatians, is what we've talked about in the past, and we call this a centered set paradigm, a centered set approach, um, which is represented by this diagram here. And again, Mark Baker, um, he uses this, but he, uses, he borrows this actually from a guy named Paul Ebert. Um, I'm not going to talk to you about, that, about Paul's story, but it, well, actually, it's quite interesting, because the whole thing comes... The whole thing comes out of uh, Paul Ebert. He's a cultural anthropologist, and he was a missionary to India in the 70s. And in India, it's a very pluralistic society. He comes across this guy who hears the message of the gospel, hears the message of how he's saved through grace alone, through the cross of Jesus, and he's a Christian, right? He starts going to church. Amazing. That's a really easy story. Except that because he's in that pluralistic society, because he's a part of that world, and because he has a very different understanding of God than what uh, the, the Paul Ebert has as a Christian missionary, a God in which, uh, you know, I would say little g God, does he have a full understanding of the, uh, of the gospel? You know, he, uh, he wants to start worshiping Christian, or with Christians in church, but he also still enjoys going to his Hindu rituals and religious ceremonies. Um, and then, you know, he's like, yeah, Jesus is God, but he also, uh, you know, he, he burns incense for Jesus, but then he has other gods on his shelf as well that he continues to burn incense to. So the question that Paul Ebert came with is like, is this a guy a Christian? Because if he's saved by grace alone, 
great. But now we're adding these other things. He also can't have you know, idols on his shelf. He also can't go to Hindu religious rich rituals. He also can't do these other things that are all sort of imposed by this larger culture on him. And that really caused confusion for Hebert, understandably, which is how he understood sort of the bounded and the fuzzy sets that came out of this and which eventually emerged this, um, this paradigm of like, okay, what if we don't differentiate and judge based on these lines, these boundaries, but we actually judge based on who is at the center of that community and what is the posture, the direction toward that center. And so this, like I said, is represented here in this diagram. You notice the first thing maybe is that there are no lines around there. And it's, that, it's not because lines don't exist. We all have convictions and values. We've said this all along. It's just that we don't allow those lines and values to be the thing that gets in the way of our fellowship and of our unity. Those things don't matter. We have people who are moving toward Jesus. We have people who are moving away from Jesus. That's how we understand what it means to be in Christ. There's um, another astute thinker who put it this way. He said, a centered model considers a community's or an individual's posture toward the center, not their position about the center. That guy. Keep your eye on him. He's clever. (laughs) What's that? Very wise man. He very well could be. I I wasn't able to get his first name, but... (laughs) Ascended model considers a community's posture toward the center, not their position about the center. It's posture over position. All of our lines and our bounded group thinking, they fall away when we place Jesus at our center. And Paul calls this kind of community centered on Jesus in which lines are not used to define us. He calls this new creation community. Or this new people of God in in Galatians chapter 6, he says. And we want to, again, begin exploring what that kind of looks like uh, both this morning and next week. But for the next few minutes, I want us to spend time thinking about this shared identity. Um, Again, this this is the center set. I want us to think about the shared identity that we have that allows us to center Jesus. And that, of course, is the cross. The cross is what centers us, and Jesus on the cross. And um, because this is the neat thing about the gospel. Rather than ethnicity and socioeconomic status or religious practices or beliefs or any of those things, the litmus test for determining who is worthy to be in Christ Well, let me just read this. This is what Paul says in Galatians. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in. This is one of my favorite passages in the scriptures. The life I now live in the body, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. Some of you have learned, I live by the faith in the Son of God. And both of those passages can be equally, or both of those, uh, the language can, can be translated either way of those. But I think it's more, in my mind, I think it's more beautiful to say this way. I, the faithfulness of the Son of God, who his faithfulness by going to the cross right? Who loved me and who gave himself for me. I don't set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And what this does is, it's saying that there's nothing we've done, but Jesus loves us 
and he gives himself for us so that we can be united with Christ and with one another. We place the grace of God, that is Jesus on the cross at the center of everything, the center of our theology, the center of our understanding of life and reality, because if it's anything else, if it is, you know, laws that we need to follow, if it is um, beliefs or positions that we need to hold, if it is an amount of money that we need to give away or an amount of money we need to keep, if it is um, clothes that we need to wear or clothes that we shouldn't wear, or if it is a religious ceremony that we should be a part of or, or shouldn't be a part of, or if it is a social justice action that we need to take, if it is um, a church specifically that we need to attend or, or the Bible that we need to attend, if it is anything other than Christ on the cross that reconciles us to God, that allows us to be alive as a family in Christ, then Paul says, Christ died for nothing. We need the cross because it prevents us from putting anything else in the way of qualifying us. It renders everything else useless. None of that stuff gives us our worth or our value. Only the cross of Christ. That makes sense? Okay, now skip down. We're going to skip down to chapter 3 because now we're getting into sort of the real meat of this epistle. And this is what Paul writes. And uh, again, pay attention to the green. So in Christ Jesus, you all are, you are all children of God through faith. This is chapter uh, 3, verse 26 to 29. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, There's, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, I told you to hold on to that phrase in Christ earlier. This is why. Notice this repetitious language about being in Christ or being with Christ or being unified in Christ. This is language about belonging to Christ. And this is the theme that we see in all of Paul's writing all throughout the New Testament. Here's a quick example. Look at this. Romans 6, 8. You probably can't read it. Let me just listen. Let me read it to you. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Romans 6, 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. One of my favorite verses. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new has come. Philippians 2.1, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, be of like mind, he continues. Colossians 2, And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Notice that this is a theme all throughout the New Testament. It is splattered on almost every page of the Gospels, uh, specifically the New Testament epistles. And in this passage in Galatians, Paul is saying that when we center the crucified and resurrected Jesus, when we find our identity and our worth and our value in the cross of Christ, rather than in our status, rather than in our family, rather than in our religion, our ethnicity, 
our ability to keep rules, whatever it else, then we are in Christ. This being in Christ is the very new creation community that Paul wants us to practice. Now, next week, we're going to look at more traits of what new creation community looks like. But I want to uh, wrap up this morning with just sort of two things that um, we begin to understand regarding um, new creation community. What are the traits? What does it look like? And the first thing is that it allows us to celebrate diversity. Again, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Oops, I think it go this way. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, for there is male, nor there is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, what is Paul not saying? He is not saying that because of the cross, Jews and Gentiles will stop existing. Or Slaves and masters. Now, slaves and masters is another conversation that we would say, yes, slaves and masters should stop existing. But let's pretend it's as servants and employers or employees and employers, because it could also be just as much that. Uh, or females and males will stop existing. He's not saying that all of these natural divisions in our society disappear when we are in Christ. The difference is that previously those things were used to define us. Our identity was found in those titles. Our maleness, our femaleness, our our being a CEO, our being an employee, our being a student, being a teacher. All the divisions of our society were used to define us previously. That's how we found our core identity as humans. And now in Christ, that has all been eradicated. None of those things define us. We are defined in Christ and in his death and resurrection. Now, I have this quote, and it's long, and I deliberated on putting it in, but it is just too good. Um, I want to post it up there, and I want you to get your phones out, because you're going to want to take a photo of this, and you're going to want to take uh, some time this week to just meditate on just the beauty of this quote. This is, um, her name is Connie Nicholson. And I actually got it from the Baker book. But this is what she says because it beautifully captures this. All right, nobody has their phone now except Donna. Okay, great. Thanks, Donna. If someone tells me that they're going to treat me, and I wanted to like, make the whole thing green, but it would be even harder to read. So I just had to be very selective. If someone tells me that they're going to treat me as a man and ignore my femininity, is that supposed to be a compliment? How much more powerful and empowering is it to say, I see your femininity, I don't want you to act like a man. I see your race, your social status. I see you. The power of being in Christ is not that our differences disappear, listen, but that our identity and our value is not in these, and that since our identity does not rest on these traits, we do not use our distinction as a means to oppress or belittle others. In other words, whatever status we might have in this world, When we are in Christ, we can no longer use that status to oppress, to to cast judgment, to to value or devalue someone else. A Christ-centric community, a, a community with Jesus at the center, has the commonality of Jesus. He is the common denominator. It is a powerful statement when polar opposites can hang out together because they are a testament to their shared Christ denominator. 
which launches them into relating to one another in Christ as a family instead of through our lenses of distinction. So am I the only one that just like, I'm like, yes, that basically is a summary of this entire series, folks. That's what I'm trying to get us to uh, see. That's what I'm trying to get me to see. This is, I think, what we are trying to do as followers of Jesus, to look at all the, the things that divide us naturally in society, whatever they might be, cast those aside because in Christ we are one. And the beautiful thing about this kind of paradigm that has Christ as the denominator is that it allows the diversity that we all bring to the table to flourish. Because this, the church, the capital C church, the lower C church, is not a melting pot. It is not um, a monolith, right? That we, you know, we have said this all along that unity is not uniformity. Amen? Unity is not uniformity. We're not like a cult where everyone has to believe the exact same things and buy into the exact and dress the same way. And uh, you know, all the, the that's not what that, that's not what causes a church to flourish. A, a church that can flourish is a church that is celebrating all of the things that make us unique as individuals, and yet we can come together and be a family of God united in Christ because of the cross. Um, Sky Jathani is an author I've, I've quoted a few times in the past, and uh, Ron and I read a devotion from him in the morning together uh, at the kitchen table. And this week, he actually shared a story in his devotion that kind of gets at this um, celebration of diverse Christian community centered on Jesus. And I thought, you know, that's kind of neat. So he says that years ago, he was visiting a church in Chicago. Um, and a lot of churches, we used to do this too, and it's not my favorite thing to do, but a lot of churches uh, do the thing called, they call it pass the peace, or they just say, okay, now we're going to take three minutes, and we're going to stand up and say hi to the person next to you. Um, it is an introvert's worst nightmare, and it is an extrovert's just like, yeah. But fair, to be fair, I'm an extrovert, and I cringe at it. And so, you know, I don't know if we'll ever get into the point in this community where we start standing up and shake hands again. I'm hoping not, but if we do, I'll, I'll, I'll submit to that. That's fine. Anyway, that's, that's, not, um, that's not what this story is about. But they are doing this stand-up-and-greet thing in this big church, and, uh, and Sky is an introvert. And so he's kind of hanging out at the back in a sparsely populated area. And so when this time comes for, the, for everyone to stand up, he's kind of like looking around. He doesn't really see anyone. And then he's, oh, there's a guy a few rows down. So he goes down and he introduces himself to another introvert who is standing down there and also doesn't want to really connect with too many people. And so they, you know, awkwardly shake hands. And then they just kind of like stand there and watch all these weirdo extroverts like smiling and shaking hands down with the rest of the church. And they're like, cool. And it starts to feel a little bit awkward. And so he says, uh, to break the awkwardness, I asked the guy his name. He says, my name's Pat. And he says, oh, nice to meet you, Pat. And they're just kind of standing there. He's like, so, Pat, what do you do? And Pat says, oh, I own the Chicago Bears. Without an ounce of um, hint, or without a hint of boasting, just sort of matter-of-factly, he's like, yeah, I own the Chicago Bears. And his name is uh, Pat McCaskey. And Pat McCaskey's grandfather basically founded the NFL. And uh, he says, I, it turned out I was sitting next to Pat McCaskey. His grandfather invented the NFL. The McCaskey family was the closest thing to Chicago that, that, uh, that Chicago has to royalty. 
Pat and I come from very different families, and we move among very different communities. But on that Sunday morning, we were just two introverts in the church worshiping Jesus. Two vastly different statuses, just hanging out, worshiping Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? And he writes this, the church is supposed to be a community where differences of class, race, gender, nationality, politics, and vocation are overcome and where everyone stands on level ground before the cross. The cross is the great equalizer and the great qualifier. And so with the cross at our center, not our drawn lines, we can flourish shoulder to shoulder with people regardless of where they come from and the societal status that they carry. Amen? That's, I mean, how beautiful would that be? And is that? And we're doing that. I'm not saying it's not happening. It is happening. It's a beautiful thing. Let's celebrate that. Um, and then the other thing that new creation looks like that we're going to just dive into really quickly is celebrating family. When Jesus is at our center, it allows for diversity to flourish without fear of disunity, and it also allows for the family of God to flourish. Now, many of the passages that um, speak of being in Christ or belonging to Jesus, they draw upon these metaphors for participation within an extended family, uh, in which Jesus, of course, is understood as the head of the family. He's the master of the household. Galatians 4.7, for instance, says, So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So because of Christ, you are now welcomed into this family of God. You are a son and daughter. You are an heir to Jesus. So to be in Christ is no longer to be a slave, but to be made a family member. And as part of a family, we get to participate in the perks of being a family. Now, this is ambitious, and typically I wouldn't wrap up a sermon on this topic, but can we talk about farting for one minute? I see some heads nodding. Yes, please. Um, Who doesn't want to talk about that in a church service? Right. Farting is embarrassing, right? Well, for most of us. It should be. We shouldn't be all willy-nilly about where we fart. Um, but let me make a confession. I fart around my family. All right? I, probably you do too. Um, and here, I'm going to let a super secret out. All of my family does as well, except for Rhonda. Rhonda's perfect. She's never farted. It's fantastic. Um, but the rest of my family, we all just kind of had this comfort about farting with each other. Not that we just sit around there farting. That's a weird picture. But it happens, right? <laughs> And I venture to bet that you fart around your family as well. And as awful and gross and nasty as farting is, let's, let's, let's call it what it is, there's also this sense of, dare I say, comfort in being able to pass gas around those you love without fear of judgment. Amen? No, nobody's saying that this time. That's weird. There's uh, a lot of amens earlier, but not so many now. Interesting. Okay, that's cool. Um, we have friends who we've built relationship with over, uh, over years and years and, and trust to the point where when they come into our home, some of us, and I won't say who, um, they don't even hesitate to pass gas in their presence. And yeah, it's gross, but it's kind of 
special to have that level of intimacy. People are just like cringing right now. You know what? Uh, yes, let's go. It's such a taboo topic. Um, like there's something almost beautiful about being able to fart in front of friends, which is maybe the weirdest sentence I've ever said from the front before. Now, I'm not, I'm going to ignore that. (laughs) Derek, go ahead. No. In fact, my next point is this. I am not advocating for us to start farting in front of each other. Please do not hear me say that. Children, youth who are in the room, we are not promoting farting publicly in this space as a church. That will not be anything we ever promote as a community. But do you know why you have the comfort and freedom to fart and pass gas around close friends and family? It's because there is no fear of rejection. There's no fear of exclusion or judgment. Well, I guess it depends on how stinky the fart is. But typically, there won't be any judgment. It's not like you're going to let one rip, and then next day, you're going to find yourself excommunicated from your home, from your family. Like, that doesn't happen. And then, even though no one agrees that farting is lovely, and even though everyone thinks it's gross and it stinks, your worth as part of that family or as part of that intimate group of friends is not based on whether you fart or not. Your worth is based on you being part of that family. You are in. You are part of that. Does that make sense? Or was that maybe like the worst metaphor to help wrap up? Oh, it's pretty bad. Okay, well, that's what you get with me, friends. The thing is, when Jesus is at our center and our posture is one in which we move toward him, in which we move toward Jesus, we can move past the fear of judgmentalism away from that garbage system in which we elevate ourselves over one another, where we exclude others, where our worth is measured by our ability to keep rules and believe the right things or whatever. Then we are open in that way. We are open to being real with one another, to being vulnerable, honest, authentic, comfortable with one another. And It's this kind of assurance within the context of a Jesus-centered community that I'm convinced that is what will lead to transformation, friends, as individuals, but as a community as well. So my prayer this morning is that as grassroots becomes more centered on Jesus, as we strive for that paradigm to become the default of our community, the posture in which we hold, that we will become a community in which we can experience life shoulder to shoulder with those who come from vastly different positions in life, vastly different um, statuses, whatever. And yet at the same time, we can become a community who experiences the benefit of intimacy as a family with such a level of comfort and authenticity, a lack of judgment, self-righteousness, and all that religiosity, all that stuff just kind of is thrown out the window. I mean, that is what new creation community looks like this morning. And we are doing amazing, we're taking amazing strides toward that, I think, as a community already. And my prayer is that we'll just continue to do that. 
Because in a world steeped in division and disputes over everything, wouldn't it just be an incredible thing to offer hope through being an example of love toward one another in this way, of unified love? So this is what new creation can look like, friends. Let's pray. Father, we are, um, we are doing our best to show, to live as, unidi- as a unified, unif- united community under you, centered on the cross. Thank you for the work you've done by dying on the cross. Thank you that we can participate in the life of Christ as individuals, but as a community as well. And that our differences do not divide but they actually um, are just beautiful to behold. Thank you that we can have diversity. Thank you that we can have the comfort of being in a room without judgment, that we don't, ha- that we don't need or fall back on self-righteousness um, because we have you as our center and nothing that we've done. And Lord, where we struggle in this, I pray that you would uh, work in our hearts, work in our lives, uh, work in our conversations with one another. Help us to have the eyes to see how division might ensue. And Father, help us to turn back, to put you back at the center and to repent of that. And I pray, Lord, that this would be our way forward as a community. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, as we um, go into uh, a time of communion, uh, Ron and I were reading, we've been reading a book called This Beautiful Truth that um, Emily Ballack actually lent us the other day. And it is a, it's written by an author named Sarah Clarkson. And it is just a beautifully written book. And last night we were in bed and we were reading this together and I came across just a paragraph. Uh, again, this is sort of her memoir. It's a story of hers. Um, and, but it's about taking the bread, and the bread and the cup. And I thought, man, this would be something really powerful that we can share this morning. So I'm you know, going to break protocol, as much protocol as we have around the cup here, the bread and the cup. And I'm going to just read this paragraph uh, to you. And I encourage you to just yeah, close your eyes and listen. His body, broken. Broken like the beautiful world he made and the hearts of those made in his image. Crushed like my own hopes and my, and my mind. Shattered like the countless thousands gripped by war. God's body, broken in and with the world that was meant to be his pure, wondrous gift. But at the cross, broken as a gift. We humans wrestle with God, but God wrestles with death itself. He takes every evil act and scream of pain into the great strength of his heart. And instead of crushing it all and us with it, allows his own priceless self to be crushed. He wrestles and writhes and dies. The one human who can win the fight against evil and in his holy defeat, we finally overcome. God does not stand aside from our suffering, directing it to his ends. He enters it. And by the sacrifice of himself, transforms it into the space where we may know his deepest love. Amen. So this morning,